Oh my. Well, that is your uh, Upper Deck Cruise Entertainment for this morning. Activities Director will be here soon to give you the map of uh, embarkation or whatever. I don't know. I haven't been on a cruise in a while. Uh, we start this series, Summer Cruise. We're looking at different ships throughout the Bible, and we're going to learn some different uh, applications of these Bible stories to every, everyday life as we travel through all of these different incredible stories that really happened that are uh, really true and that can truly be uh, applied uh, right now in, 20, in 2019. Now, some of you might be wondering uh, about the song. Several people made it popular. Uh, but uh, just to let you know, Proud Mary if, uh, was initially uh, about a hard worker that was working to make a wage. Uh, it was also about a steamboat that was rolling down the river. So if you thought that we were singing a song about weed, no, that wasn't. Some say, Proud Mary, keep on burning is not, that's not what it meant. You know, you, you know, get behind me, Satan, you know, but no, that's not what it, that's not what it was. So, hey, as we start this, this, this series, I want to jump right in. I got a lot of room to cover. I want to invite you right there at Duncan, right there at Die Ball. We provide these fill in the blanks so that uh, you can follow along, number one. Number two, it's healthy to take notes and then come back and consider these things. Um, every single one of us should be spending time with God. It may look a little different for you throughout the week than it does for me or someone else, but this is one way that you could take a next step and then you just Remember that Sunday service uh, and take these notes, and then you can kind of pray over that note for your life, pray over that note for your family uh, over this next week, and I'm inviting you to, to take these notes. There's going to be plenty to take uh, today. I want to start with a little bit of a, a dark part of the story. It gets better than this, but it's, it's gloomy. There is an issue. But the truth about issues, the truth about problems, the truth about hard moments of life or even tragedy is really, without any tragedy, there's really no need for a miracle. Without no problem, there's no need for intervention from Jesus. If everything's just hunky-dory and everything's great, um, why would Jesus need to intervene? But many times in life, we see that there are tragedies, travesties, horror moments, and God shows up with a miracle because there's a problem. And we see this problem unfolding at the very end of the, book, of the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And here's what we read. Exodus chapter 1, verse 27, 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Kill, kill them. But let every girl live. Now, how in the world, in God's story... Have we found ourselves here? You have to re rewind several hundred years, and you need to know that the story of God, the Bible, is not just a bunch of little stories. It's one big story declaring the majesty of who God is and who God loves. Who God is and who God loves. And we see that earlier on, hundreds of years earlier, God gives promises and over 7,000 promises in the Bible that are relatable to you and I today. And there's a promise he gives to a man named Abram. He says that your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the heaven. And through your descendants, all nations are going to be blessed. What he's talking about there is not just blessing, blessings with fruit and with crops and you name it. He's talking about all nations will be blessed through your seed, meaning that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, and you've heard me say this maybe before, but if you're new, those words, the anointed one, 
uh, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. Jesus the Christ is the Greek word that means Jesus the anointed one. And for the anointed one to come, he's going to come from Abram. And Abram, his name is turned to Abraham. And Abraham uh, has Isaac. Isaac has boys. And Jacob gets the birthright. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Hello. Now, it's not just one mama, moms. There was a few. There was some maidservants and a couple ladies. It was a real weird, desperate housewives of Canaan thing going on there. A uh, lot of inner turmoil. Just try, you got to read the book. You ought to read the Bible. It's really interesting. Um, but Jacob has 12 sons, and the 11th is, is like favorite, you know. Um, uh, how many of you grew up a favorite, the favorite child, just, just favorite? How many of you grew up the favorite? Not a single firstborn in that, I guarantee you. Not a single firstborn. Most of you are just the, the youngest born. I know it. My parents are on the front row. I can tell you it was the favorite. Not I. Anyway, moving on. Desperate housewives, the 11th son is the favorite, not the first. Why? Because the woman he was truly in love with since the very beginning, she could never have her own children until the 11th child of the house. She gives birth, and his name is Joseph. And Joseph is loved and given special treatment. It just is. When all the other boys are getting tube socks and oranges in their, in their stockings for Christmas, Joseph gets a Super Nintendo with a power pad. Okay? Like he's getting the Gucci shirt and the Gucci jacket with all the colors. Everybody else is getting, you know, the best that hand-me-downs, basically, okay? And Joseph is a fa- and the rest of the brothers are livid about it, and they grow with a seed. Seed turns into full-grown bitterness and hatred and jealousy, and they decide to, to not kill him but to sell him into slavery. And sure enough, slave trade comes. They sell him into slavery after throwing him into a well. He finds himself sold to a man named Potiphar. But here's the deal about Joseph's life. Joseph stays true to God. He loves God. He trusts God. He knows God has given dreams to him already as a young child. That's part of why his brothers hated him so much. And he's going to be faithful to God even though his circumstances seem a little crazy. In fact, it might seem a little reckless that God would give dreams to him and then let him go through all of this hell on earth. Joseph is sold into Potiphar, but Mrs. Potiphar has the hots for Joseph, and there's this big crazy thing. And Mrs. Potiphar, while all the other attendants are away, she puts on the, the dance music and says, Come to bed with me, Joseph. And Joseph runs out. She grabs him as he's running out, and he runs out and it just rips his clothes right off of him. It's like a comedy of crazy errors. Potiphar comes home, and Mrs. Potiphar says, he tried to, to take advantage of me, and Potiphar throws him into prison. He's in prison, uh, and it's there that he gets favor, even in the prison house, and through in a crazy turn of, you ought to read the Bible, it's really interesting. Through a crazy turn of events, Pharaoh in the palace has a dream, and someone there that was in prison, that's now out of prison, had forgotten about Joseph, but knew that Joseph could interpret dreams. And he says, I got this guy. We, we were in cell block D together, and, and, and we would always, you know, we were pumping weights on the yard together, and, and you ought to, he, he's, he, he can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh brings Joseph from the prison into the palace. He interprets the dream, and the dream is all about there's going to be crazy success for years, but then there's going to be unbelievable famine for years. And in order to survive the famine, we got to be good stewards now of what we have so we can store up during the famine. And all of that comes true. And Pharaoh is so impressed that he makes him viceroy, makes him like governor over Egypt as Pharaoh is completely sovereign. Joseph is second in command. 
and all of his 11 brothers and the household, about 70 of them, they start going through the famine and they have no choice but to travel from Canaan over to Egypt and they meet the governor. They don't recognize that it's Joseph. He's all Egypt up. He's walking like an Egyptian now, <laughs> talking like an Egyptian. And they see, they see Joseph. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He could have wiped them out. He could have said, guards put a javelin through their throats. But oh, would you just see the reckless love of God through Joseph. He sees mercy, he gives them mercy, and he gives them grace, and he gives them what they need, and he gives them the bushel full, the, the sacks full of what they, the grain to plant the crops. And it ends up that the brothers come back and tell, tell their dad, Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel, we should, they decide to all go, the 70 of them go, and they leave Canaan, and they make their camp in Israel. Uh, pardon me, in Egypt. And because Joseph is the viceroy, they're living good. They're living high on the hog. They say, well, not high on the hog because Jews don't eat hogs, but high on the cow. <laughs> they're living it up. They're living it up. And they're living happily ever after for several generations. But as is the custom in all cultures, we tend to forget the previous lessons and life learnings of the generations that have gone before us. We see now in Exodus chapter 1 what happens. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation, they die. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, look at this, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said. To his people. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. We got to deal with them shrewdly or they're going to become even more numerous. And if war were to break out, they'll probably join our enemies' fight against us and leave the country. So they had to hedge their bets. They had to strategically fortify themselves. And so now we've come back full circle to Exodus, the last scripture in chapter 1. Pharaoh gave this order. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. It was self-preservation for the Egyptians to annihilate this robust, growing, God-anointed country inside the country. And here's where we pick up the story of our first boat, Exodus 2. A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, when she saw, catch these, catch these highlighted words, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it. In another version, it says, in the ark. That's why I've entitled this song, Baby Ark. Um, and for parents that have little ones, baby ark, do, 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 baby ark, do, 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 do. Anyway, baby ark, moving on. Placed the child in the ark and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, the baby's sister, we'll later learn that her name is Miriam. She stood at a distance to see what would happen. And then Pharaoh's daughter down the way in the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And sure enough, they saw the basket among the reeds and they sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew 
babies, she said. Can I just pause for a moment? It does not matter what culture says. It does not matter even what your own house has decreed legal. There is value in human life. Even though Pharaoh had said, it's okay. They're not worth anything. It's okay. Somebody, even in that same house, had to have, even just instinctively, had to understand that there is value in human life. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam just jumps out of the reeds. Like, well, where'd you come from, crazy girl? Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. I love it. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. We're going to unpack that in just a second. I love it. Can't wait to preach this. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, we don't know how old, she nursed him for a while. In our custom, you know, you nurse a baby for a while. Some nurse a little older. When you nurse them really old, it starts getting creepy at the mall. But, but nursing in and of itself is never creepy. But, you know, I mean, when they have braces, okay, enough. <laughs> Enough's enough. Sorry for that imagery. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him, the Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, this is an iconic story in Scripture that most VBSs would share, that you'd see on flannel graphs growing up in Sunday school. You, you, you know the story because it's just a beautiful, it gets into the children's Bible book because of this baby basket and the reeds and the Nile and the crocodiles waiting by that God would shut the mouth just like he shut the lion's mouth in Daniel. He shut the crocodile's mouths, and it just so happens that, that he ends up on the doorstep of the enemy and through this beautiful work of God's redemptive plan for humanity he rises up and becomes the deliverer God had meant for him to be but I want to show you that it's not just about Moses you when you see the story of God and you understand the whole redemptive plan you need to understand that this story is way beyond Moses and baby arcs and Pharaoh's this is a picture of Christ God already knew before the foundations of the earth would be formed that the Lamb of God would be slain. He knew, had intention, had purpose to carry us to a point, to the right point in time where time would even be split before Christ and after Christ. And Christ was going to be the ultimate sacrifice, God's redemptive plan for humanity. But in order to get there, God couldn't even wait. All throughout the Old Testament, before Jesus came in the flesh as a baby... He had to show us sneak peeks, trailers, movie previews to what was going to happen. Even Moses, later on, when he was writing uh, his second book, Deuteronomy, when he was writing Deuteronomy, he, he, uh, he wanted to make sure that they knew that Moses wasn't just considering himself the best of the best. In fact, Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, not me, but like me, from among you, going to be out of the Jewish people, the Hebrew children, from your fellow Israelites, you must 
Say it with me. Listen to him. Say it one more time. Listen to him. Last week I talked about two times Jesus is, God audibly speaks about Jesus. One is at his baptism and one is at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus walks up the mountain with a couple of disciples. Moses and Elijah show up. And while Moses is there, God speaks from the clouds and God says, this is my son chosen and marked by my love, the light of my life. And God ends what he's saying, listen to him. It's a little bit of an indicator Listen to him. It's an indicator of when Moses way back then said, you got to listen to this prophet who's going to come. And there were several prophets, but he was talking about the prophet, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Even Moses got it. There was someone coming who was going to be great. And if Moses were here today, he wouldn't say, hey, follow me. He'd say, hey, follow Jesus. Jesus is the voice we were waiting for. Some similarities between Moses and Jesus, just to show you this picture of Christ, just to show you this beautiful deliverer that Moses escaped infanticide right there in Egypt from a crazed king, uh, drunk with power and pride. Jesus himself escaped infanticide because of a drunk uh, a king, drunk with power and pride, King Herod, both of them at the same time. Uh, Moses escaped and went into the house of Egypt. Uh, Jesus was in Bethlehem and escaped the infanticide of Bethlehem and, and the Judea area and actually escaped into Egypt. And, and, and there was part of prophecy being fulfilled in that moment. Both Moses and Jesus delivered law from mountains. For, for Moses, it was Mount Sinai, and he delivered the Ten Commandments to the people. They couldn't even wait for a few days for him to come down off the mountain. They decided to make their own golden calf and do it their way. But, but Moses brought the Ten Commandments, and there they were trying to do it their way. And Jesus, he comes from Calvary. He comes from the hill called Calvary, which means the skull. He comes from the place of Golgotha. And, and here's the, the difference, though. Moses brought us do's and don'ts, and it was important for the time to understand, don't be doing this, do this, don't do this. Do this, but Jesus brings us a new command, and it's basically done. He says, I've done all this. I've fulfilled all this, and now you're not living on tablets of stone. Yes, the word of God is so important and so vital, every single jot and tittle, but I'm going to tell you, if you can hang your, hang your life on the greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you're good. all these other things will align, and they'll be there because I completed it, because I did it, because I said it's finished, it's done. We see the similarities between Moses, but Moses is not a replacement for Christ. He's just a little picture, a shadow of Christ. Moses delivered Hebrews from slavery through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. And Jesus, as he ascended, said, I'm going to deliver humanity from, their, from slavery by being the final sacrifice for sin on Calvary. Uh, the, the, Jesus, Moses brought them to the Promised Land. Didn't even get to enter into the promised land because of some different things. He was imperfect. He was, he was human, but Jesus was completely human while being perfect and completely divine. And Jesus leaves and says, I'm not, I'm not going to not be there. I'm going to be there. In fact, I'm preparing the place for you. And the same way the Israelites did not, did not completely just gel into Egyptian life. They kept separated for the most part. They picked up some customs they had to get rid of along the way. But they didn't just conform to the culture wherein they became slaves. They were living for a better place. They were living for a better land. And I just want to remind you that all of us are living for a better place. All of us are living in a temporary tent. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. That's where our real citizenship is. Are you with me this morning? 
I am preaching better than you're responding. Will you respond a little better this morning? So what does this show us? Let me show you what this shows us. This is a story of the enemy trying to keep salvation from coming. This is the enemy, and he has been trying to keep salvation from coming to your home, from coming to your life, from coming to your kids and your great-grandkids, and it's been the same scheme since the garden. He's trying to keep salvation from coming. So the enemy gives these, these thoughts and ideas to Pharaoh that if we can wipe these guys out, guess what? If the Jews are wiped out, there is no way that the promise of God is going to come true because God said it would be a Jew who would be, would be the deliverer. So if he can wipe them all out, the enemy wins. But God cannot be stopped, everybody. God will not be stopped. It may look like it's over. It may look like it's tough. It may seem like there's no way out. But when God says there's no way out, he provides a way out. He provides a way out. And he's, he's doing that in this story. As we look at this little passage... I just want to give you five thoughts that we can apply today. Five handlebars for Summer Cruise Part 1. The first is this, number one. Remember, there is no such thing as an ordinary child. Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, Sexy names right there. Amram and Jochebed. Jochebed gives birth and they saw that he was a fine child. In Hebrews 11, there in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith chapter. And there in Hebrews, the author says this, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict they saw a baby but it wasn't about seeing the baby and the complexion of the baby let's be honest moms every baby you have is beautiful but everybody else that's looking at that baby eh. babies are babies some are bit pretty some are you know not Babies are babies. They're, they're beautiful. They're valuable. They're, they, 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 have, they have unbelievable potential. But it wasn't that they saw the complexion of this child and thought, this one's going to be something special. Do you see the twinkle in his eyes? Because guess what faith is? Faith isn't what you see. So this scripture gives us an indication. They saw he was no ordinary child, but this is in the faith chapter. And faith is not about what you see. Faith is about what you believe even when you can't see it. So there was a belief in them that, that, that was way beyond eyesight. It was insight. There was a spiritual insight that, 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 that these parents had. And I want to say to you, see your kids beyond your eyesight. See the next generation beyond the way the news wants to define millennials and Generation Z. That's what we're going to do at Timber Creek Youth. We're going to see them beyond what the, 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 everybody else is wanting to say about this generation that doesn't even know how to run a power tool. But you know what they can do? They can do great things. There's potential in them. There is beauty in them. There is designs for living that God tucked away inside of them since they were being knitted in their mother's womb. And I want to say see beyond what you see right now in your child. 
speak out what God sees in your children. There is no ordinary child. Extraordinary in the eyes of God. Made in his image. And you may be waiting for that seed to produce. Because it, it looks pretty ordinary right now. Pretty frustrating right now. Pretty grounded until Jesus comes back right now. But there is gold there. God sees it. You see it. Number two, God is not the only one who knows you're special. And just as the devil sought out to destroy Moses, just as the devil sought out to destroy Jesus, the devil is a devourer, a lion, seeking to destroy. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy lives. There is no child-sized devil. The devil that tempts you, Grandpa, is the same devil that tempts your four-year-old grandchild. The same devil that, that was tempting in the wilderness Jesus for 40 days is the same devil that wants to do nothing but just because he sees that potential tucked in there. You know what's crazy about the enemy? He knows if he can get at them young. Notice that? If I can just get them at the infanticide, if I can just get them while they're babies... That's why we care so much about the next generation. It does not mean that we devalue any other generation. But I know that I, I've got my own set of moms and mom and dad that are grandpa and grandma, and they want nothing more than wanting more for the next generation. And I know, grandma and grandpa, you want more for your grandkids and kids and great grandkids. And that's how we are operating here. We have a very strategic focus in the middle of the target to want more for the next generation because the enemy is trying to get at them young trying to get at them young why because they're trying to figure out their whole territory they're trying to build their kingdom it's the same with David when he was a young king the enemy tried to get him while he was a young king and while our kids are young they're going to be bombarded with sinful opportunities and you got to know they're no ordinary child and you're not the only one that thinks they're special the enemy knows they're special and is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And it is so imperative that we, that we protect the young while they're vulnerable. You protect the seed so it doesn't get washed away. You protect the nest. You, 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 you put the wing over the chicks. You make sure that they are provided an environment of protection so they can grow into those spiritual muscles. There's no child-sized devil. And there's no child-sized Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, mom, and it can dwell in your five-year-old. As they come under the understanding of who God is and what he did by dying for us and paying for our sin that separates us from God. And all God wants is relationship with us. That's the story. The Bible is not a story about men trying to build stuff and get close to God. It is about God building a pathway for us to get close to him. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God. Number three. You with me so far this morning? Number three. What was meant to destroy you can actually become a source of rescue. Moses should have died. He should have been tossed into the Nile. All the other babies were being thrown into the Nile but the same river that was meant to destroy him was actually the river 
that was the vehicle that rescued him. And do you know that sin and death are meant to destroy you? You're born into sin. You're going to die. The stats are out. The new poll, new Barna research poll came out. 100% of people die. It's crazy. 100%. Sin and death, they're realities of life. And you know, Jesus came and he took on all the sin on the cross. And in order to... In order to rescue us from what could destroy us, he took it on. And because death could destroy us, guess what Jesus does? He dies. He, he takes the death to save you from death. Here's what Hebrews says in Hebrews 2. Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. You would think by breaking death, you would just give life. But him breaking death, he had to die. So what was meant to destroy Jesus himself actually became the river of rescue for all of us. When he's bleeding and he's dying, it's actually, there's the rescue. It's the river of grace that's flowing from Calvary and flowing from Christ's veins. It's a beautiful thing that what was meant to destroy him actually rescues us. And now, now you really were completely saved from death. Now, you, yeah, technically you die, I get it, yeah, you know that. But you really don't die. He's defeated death. In fact, the psalmist got it right when David wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not really the valley of death, it's the valley of the shadow of death. When you die, it's a shadow of death. It's not really death. You say, what do you mean it's not really death? Shadow of death. Let me give it to you this way. Would you rather be hit by a car or would you rather be hit by a shadow of a car? Yeah, exactly. Because death really isn't death. It's actually a departure from this temporary life to the real, true, full life God has intended for all those who put their faith and trust in him. Uh, I, could, I could share more. Let's keep going. Number four. I love this. The enemy's impotence to destroy the people of God is ironically exposed. In my NIV study Bible, right there in the notes, it, it, it had that very statement. It says, it, but it said the Pharaoh's impotence to destroy the people of God is ironically exposed. By this time, Moses has been placed after three months old, placed in that little basket. That little ark, and he's sent down the way. I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost as if finally Jochebed and Amram, they see that the battalion that is coming to every neighborhood has now started at the edge of their cul-de-sac, and they're beginning to bust open doors the same way that they were ransacking doors in World War II looking for hidden Jews. This is Holocaust 1.0. And they've ran out of time. So they, they break the glass on the fail-safe, and they grab the, the ark, and they run out to the river bank. And I can only imagine what a mom and dad are saying and praying and crying through tears, filling their eyes. Oh, my God, what is going to hell, God? 
but they weren't afraid of the edict. They had a certain amount of faith, but they still had to place as, a, as parents, they had to place their baby in the Nile River. And they say, Miriam, run up ahead. Just run up ahead and tell us what happens. And they have to go back into their home and wait for the guards to bust down their door. Too. And there Miriam runs down and is hiding and sneaking through the reeds and gets closer and closer and closer to the cleaner area, the nicer area, and, and into the area where, where steps are leading down to the shore. And there she sees the women gathering and they're doing their ceremonial bathing in the Nile and, and, and she sees she's watching from a distance. And, and it's just this perfect turn of events where God must have just pinched the, the big toe of Moses where he just cuddling uh, and pinches the toe. <laughs> and there's a little cry from among the bushes and that doesn't sound like a duck. Now Pharaoh's daughter's a little scared like, I don't want to get bit by a snake or I want to let the crocodile. So she, what does she do? Servant girl, go, go find out. Don't come back without a hand, you know. And sure enough, they go and they open the top of this ark and there is this Hebrew baby. It's, oh, it's a Hebrew child. And like some kind of crazy out in the middle of nowhere, this girl, 12-year-old girl, pops out of the reeds and says, yeah, I, 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 I know parents over there that could help you. Do you need a nanny? They're like, I would love a nanny. I, I, I've never had a baby. Do, do you have a nanny? Oh, yeah, she's like Mary Poppins for Hebrew people. I know her. I know her well. She, she, she would be glad to nurse your child. And so Miriam takes and introduces Jochebed to Pharaoh. She introduces the baby's mom to the baby's future mom. And God is, seems reckless, but it's so intentional. And what happens is this Pharaoh's daughter, who should know better because her daddy's in charge, she sees the human life. She sees the value and she hands, here's what she says. She says, will you take this baby and nurse him? And Jochebed's like, well, I can fit it into my schedule. Could you, I, I wonder if Jochebed could even say anything. I wonder if she was just so emotional that Miriam is just tucking, hanging on to her, her hand saying, yes, she'll take him. She loves him. She's beautiful. He, he thinks she's so like, oh my goodness, she can't wait to, to nurse him and bring him back to you. Even the Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to pay you. I'll pay you for it. So here. Can you see the irony that Pharaoh's house rescues the deliverer that's going to bring the people that Pharaoh meant to kill right out? That Pharaoh is not just rescuing his own enemy, but he's paying his enemy's mom to nurse him Jochebed gets a check in the mail and it says, First Bank of Egypt. <laughs> and then later, later on, later on, after he's fully nursed and grown, he goes back into to, to Pharaoh's house, and the book of Acts talks in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was given the best education. He's taught up, and it wasn't, look, it wasn't to learn Egyptian archaeology and construction and to work on the new temple. God had it all. God was making the devil pay for everything. The devil was paying for, 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 for God was paying through the devil's bank account. And you know what? God has not forgotten you. And what the enemy meant 
God has a plan. And you got to believe that. You may not see it with your eyesight, but know it with faith. Know it with insight. But we get tired of those circumstances. We, we struggle when things aren't right. We struggle when we're in our own Nile. We struggle when things don't look the way we thought they should look. Mark Batterson says it like this, an author, famous author, the circumstances we ask God to change are often, though, the circumstances God is using to change us. Some results vary. The seed doesn't grow immediately. We had, I, 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 God gave me a vision that by the time we were 90 years old, we were going to be pregnant and fertile and be giving uh, birth to locations of Timber Creek Church across the forest, the timber country of East Texas. And so in 2017, in February, we said we're going we're gonna to give birth on September of 2017 to our Nacogdoches campus. We, I thought we were birthing a nine-month term baby. But we were elephants around here. It's taken us 24 months. We've been pregnant for 20-some, 36 months now almost. But you know what? He used this circumstance of waiting, the time of pregnancy, to teach us things, to, to help us learn, to provide the location we are now in. He helped us launch prison venues first before we thought, we were thought we were going to do prison venues later. And you guys at Dieball and Duncan, you are part of the product of God saying, you know what, actually before you do Nacogdoches, will you reach who no one else is reaching? Will you do something right there in Dieball? Well, right there in Duncan in your backyard, would you consider reaching out to some people that need some freedom in their hearts, some freedom in, in their steps spiritually? And so he put you in order in the top priority because what, God, what, what we were trying to figure out on order of importance and priority, God had a different plan. And he uses the circumstances we go through to change us, even though we might ask for him to change the circumstances we're going through. Finally, number five, would you let your deliverance define you, not your dysfunction? Just look at the person next to you and say, <laughs> You got dysfunction. <laughs> just, just tell them. You're dysfunctional. Like, there's not a human alive that doesn't have a, a certain amount of dysfunction. When I was younger, I thought my family was fully functional. <laughs> but I've gotten older. So have my parents. And we put the fun in dysfunction. I'm just telling you. We all got dysfunction. Every single one of us. You know why? Because we're human. And we need the Spirit to empower us, to help us overcome our own issues, our own flesh. Our own, uh, the, the, the flesh is weak and the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is still weak. It's why every first and third semester of the year we provide what's called encounter. An encounter is a way that we deal with identity. We deal with taking next steps for freedom. We talk about really discovering uh, areas where maybe we've been living a certain way and, and it doesn't align with Bible and you've been trying to figure out why is things not, are things not lining up and, and there's just a certain amount. And, and people are living defined by dysfunction. That's what culture wants to do. You, they, they want, the culture wants to define this culture by dysfunctions. They're this, they're that, they're this. And God wants to define you by deliverance, by calling you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. But many people, they, you, here's what you can do. You can focus on what you've been put in. You can focus on what you've been put in. Can you imagine a more dysfunctional situation for a family to go through than to have to leave their child in a river and let them float down the Nile? Can you imagine 
a tougher thing to talk about when you're old. Why did you leave me? Why did this happen? What, I mean, could you imagine that happening today? You know, what, you know what people deal with that. When they feel abandoned at a young age, they have to deal with it. it, it no doubt there's, this is a, a dysfunctional situation waiting to, to go full grown in Moses' adolescence. In fact, he struggles with his identity. Figuring out where do I fit in and should I be in the army? But then this Egyptian is beating a fellow Hebrew and I can't, and he kills him and then he has to flee. And he's 40 years on the other side of a desert. And finally, when he's 80 years old, God in the form of a burning bush finally says, here's why all this has happened. The seeds begin to germinate in his life. The deliverer now at 80 years old is going to begin to come and be used by God to do what only God can do through Moses and his, and his posse. But you could focus on what God's put you in or what you've been put in just because we live in a broken world. You can focus on that you've been put in the waters of that, of that family. You can focus, you, you, you had to be put in the waters of that divorce or that, that, that lying husband or, or, or abused when you were a child. You were put in some waters that should not define you and they don't have to define you. See, here's what happens. Moses is placed in the water, but his name Moses doesn't come from being put in the water. Pharaoh's daughter says, no, his name is Moses because I drew him out of the water. He's out of the water. You may be in darkness. It lasts for a night, but joy can come in the morning. It's what Jesus' business is, being the light in a dark place. Turning what is a mess in your life into a message of hope for you and for others. So you can focus on what you've been put in or you can focus on what you've been drawn from. Don't let dysfunction define you. Be defined by what God wants to deliver you from. Let me end with this story. We'll go on a little road trip over to Paraguay, a little town called Katura. Anybody ever been to Katura, Paraguay? Anybody? There's really no reason for you to have been there. It's not a, you know, there's not a, there's not a sandals there, okay? All right? There's not a beaches all-inclusive. In fact, this is what Katura looks like. Katura, Paraguay is literally a landfill. Three million pounds of garbage are dumped in Katura every single day. There are over 1,200 families that call Katura their home, and they make their shacks that they call homes amongst other people's trash. Most of them, the way they earn the living is they get 10 cents per pound of plastic that they recycle, 25 cents per pound of cardboard. And with these 1,200 families, there are hundreds of children. And Paraguay is trying to figure out how to continue to educate these children. So there is a school system and they're able to get away from the trash and go to school, but then come back and they live amongst the landfill. A new music teacher came in to serve at the school in Katura. A music teacher realized though, I want to teach these kids more than just vocal music. I'd love to teach them with instruments, but realized there were no instruments to be used. Nobody had any instruments. A violin would cost more to buy than their home was to construct. Until this music teacher came across a man by the name of Jose Gomez. Jose lived in the dump. 
he was a carpenter. And Jose asked, uh, the, the music teacher asked Jose, could you make me a violin? Could you make me a violin? And the carpenter said, what's a violin? If show me a picture of it, maybe I can make it. And so the music teacher showed a picture of the violin to Jose. And Jose began to, from the garbage of the landfill, create instruments for these children. This is Jose here, and he's holding a, a violin made of metal scrap and a banjo made of tins. He began to form these violins, and, and the children of Katura Paraguay began to learn how to play. This violin, you can't see it very clo closely, but there's a fork holding the strings with tension. He made saxophones out of old pipes and used bottle caps as the valves. A bass violin, he took an oil drum. And this little group, different journalists caught on, it, it, it went viral. And this little group from the dump formed what they call the landfill harmonic and they travel and they play beautiful music from trash. And the, the tagline here on landfill harmonic, the world sends us garbage, we send back music. And I just want to tell you, Jesus, put you in the seat today and put me with the microphone this morning to tell you I make gold out of garbage. I make beautiful things out of ashes. I make symphonies out of stuff that other people, maybe they would have thrown you away. Maybe it feels like it's just a dump. He says, oh, I do my best work with dust and a little bit of breath. And I can make life. That's the story of Christ in a little baby boat. Would you pray with me? With heads bowed, eyes closed. I first want to talk to you if you're dealing with life, handing you some tough things. I'd just like to pray over you. If that's you, would you just put a hand up? I'm not going to embarrass you, but you've been dealing with some tough things. Maybe from way back when, maybe from last week, maybe from right now. Yeah. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you do your healing work? Just reach out to him today, friends. Just embrace what he wants to say to you, what he wants to do through you. How he wants to draw you out, not leave you in. Maybe you'd invite him to do that. God, would you draw me out of this? Or Lord, would you teach me? Show me what you're teaching me through this. Lord, I'm going to see with faith, not see with my eyes today. And with heads bowed and eyes still closed, from Duncan to Dival to here in the Lufkin location, if you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life, don't delay. Don't wait on that. I believe this is an intersection of opportunity for you. And if you're here and you need to ask Jesus to be your Savior, to begin to guide you, to direct you to what's next, to, 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 to become the author of the new story he wants to write and rewrite in your life, if that's you, and you say, I'm tired of doing it on my own, I need Jesus to guide me, would you just put a hand up in the air too? 
all across the room. Anybody here, Dieball Duncan? Thank you. I, I can see, I, I see the hand. Jesus sees that hand right there, ma'am. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. Thank you. Thank you, sir. In your own words, you say, Jesus, come into my life and guide me. Forgive me of the past and where I've tried to do it on my own. I, I may have not really known any other way, but today I'm understanding that you have a story for me and I want to, I'm buying in. I'm in. I'm in for what you have next. Thank you for not being mad at me, but for making this moment, this intersection of opportunity to give my life to you and begin to take next steps. Thank you for saving me today, just like you saved the Israelites, just like you saved all humanity, you saved me too. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said amen, and would you give it up for those that...